persecuted church is the fact that Jesus is alive. So amen. So first, or kindergarten through third grade, you are dismissed. And open my Bible here. So as I was thinking through how are we going to talk about this and what am I going to say, the first title I had for today was Iron Sharpens Iron. Because my perspective on the body of Christ that suffers is they sharpen me. So today, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of current events and here's what's taking place in the world. Because quite honestly, we watch the news and that, that's your job. That's my job. We're supposed to educate ourselves. So I'll do a little bit of that. But for me, the per- persecuted church is a group of people who humble me. Because as I watch and read and listen to the things that they are doing in obedience to Jesus Christ, in light of their circumstances compared to mine, they spur me on to good works and they spur me on to live a more obedient life to Jesus Christ. So I hope that that's true, to you, true for you guys as well as you hear these things. But I chose Jesus is alive because nobody would be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ today if he wasn't alive. Amen? So that's why we're here. We're here because Jesus is risen. He has conquered death. So that's what we're going to talk about. Changing gears, here's some pictures for you. As we look at these pictures, they're not easy to look at. They cause stress, fear, frustration, anxiety, anger. I can stop there. But let me talk about them. So we have Vladimir Putin on here, and everybody today probably knows who Vladimir Putin is, the president of Russia. And Vladimir is flexing his muscles as he has more tenure in office. And we hear the word Russia, and we go back to thinking about the Cold War. We think about the the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Now to today, Russia's flexing their muscles again. And Vladimir, we know that we're not on good terms with them. Um, they now have control of the Arctic trade routes because um, they're able to get through the ice and they're going, going to Japan and kind of dominating that trade route, becoming a world power. It's coming out in news in the last couple of weeks. They now have developed a new nuclear missile called the Satan II, which that missile is the Satan. Um, but anyways, I don't know if their propaganda is true. Russia likes to pump out propaganda to scare us. But supposedly this missile can wipe out a state the size of Texas and a country the size of France. And we get worked up and we get fearful. And this is where our minds go. And then we have, um, down next to the missile, we have ISIS. And ISIS is a real threat. I mean, we know what they do. I don't need to talk much about ISIS. But if you're a Christian, and you're living in the Middle East, and ISIS rolls into town, you have four choices. When they come in, they're, first of all, probably going to label your house with some paint with a letter U, which is actually in Arabic, a letter N. It has a U with a diamond dot kind of on top of that. And what that means is it's the the, uh, Arabic letter Nasrani, which N represents, just like we are Christians, well, they call them Nasranis because Jesus is from Nazareth. So it's the same label, the same brand as a Christian. And when they come in and they paint your house, just like the Nazis painted stars on the houses of the Jews, you are going to either convert to Islam You're going to pay the jizya, which is a very expensive tax, to them, recognizing who they are. You're going to leave or you're going to die. So these are the things that our brothers and sisters in the Middle East face. And ISIS is a real threat, not just to them, but to the rest of the world. And in there, in addition, we have mosques. Not only, sometimes looking at a mosque for some people causes anxiety, let alone if a mosque was going to be built in Middletown, how would we all feel about that? So a mosque would definitely cause a stir. 
up there is a woman who has cancer. So suffering, I mean, comes in all forms. It's not just necessarily obedience to Christ, but let me say, our church, I mean, we've been through all kinds of sicknesses and death and all kinds of stuff, and we suffer together. But even in that type of suffering, which isn't necessarily rooted in obedience to Jesus, we're called to suffer obediently when we have cancer and health problems and whatever else Jesus calls us to go through. So that is a very real thing. It's not easy to look at. We have political movements. I chose the LGBT movement with the flag. You choose the movement. But there's a lot of movements out there today that are contrary to what God's Word says. And it causes us to make a choice. Are we going to take a stand in love for what the Bible says? Or are we just going to kind of poo-poo it away and say, well, we're not going to worry about that? We have choices to make of how we're going to deal with that. So, anyways... These are real things that we have to wrestle with and grapple with, and we have to figure out how we're going to handle them, because in every single action that we have in life, we're called to be obedient. That's our ultimate act of worship. Well, if those pictures aren't enough to stress you out, here you go. (laughs) So this week, we have Hillary and um, Donald and a couple other candidates, but most likely, one of these two is going to be your next president, and mine too. The majority of people I talk to aren't all pumped up. I mean, they know who they're going to vote for because it's our civic duty, and I'm not going to go on that sermon because Paul talked about it. But again, doesn't, we're not all pumping our arms and saying yes. We have an obligation to follow the government and submit to them. And again, like I said, Paul preached on this, but these are things that stress us out, and we have this big decisions to make as to what we're going to do. So, I guess with this, we are all apt to be like this guy. And we're all apt to play the world's smallest violin. And we all want to complain, and we all want to cry, and we all want to spout our frustrations, which is legit. I mean, because there's a lot of things to be frustrated with. But putting those things aside, I have struggles, guys. So do you. And I'm not going to stand here and share them with you because it's a big group and that's intimidating. But if we sat down one-on-one, I might spill the beans, and you'd probably do the same for me. But don't we all in our mind, when we're faced with temptation, or you know what, people, we say to ourselves, man, people just don't understand. They don't got to deal with this. This is something that's real to me. I have to deal with. Man, no one understands. If only, but, if, whatever, then we start this. I'll tell you, when you start this, that starts that slope down of destruction, Because your mind is on you, it's on me if I do it, and it's not on him. So that is where we go. So I'll tell you what. In my mind, I think the problem, the issue that we need to grapple with when we talk about all of these current events, we talk about playing the world's smallest violin. We're going to look at Mark 9, 17 to 27, because you're going to see how this relates here. So if you guys would, open with me to Mark chapter 9, 17 to 27. And this morning, I'm glad I looked over my notes because uh, the slide this morning when I was eating breakfast still said Luke 17, 9, 17 and 27. It's not Luke, it's Mark. I had to make that change or he's been going the wrong place. So in Mark, many of you know this story. It's about a man who has a demon-possessed son he brings to Jesus. So I'll begin reading here in Mark 9, 17. It says, And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. 
And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. So the key point here is I identify with this father. He believed. He he took his son to the disciples of Jesus, who Jesus gave power to cast out demons. I mean, did he believe? I think he did. But in the end, he says to Jesus, if you can. Let me ask you a question I have to ask myself. Is our belief in Jesus prefaced with an if you can? Because it doesn't matter what aspect of life we're looking at. Is we believe or we believe that Jesus is who he said he is? And when he does this, does this, this father is cut inside and he believes. He's like, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I don't believe. Help my unbelief. And when we're thinking about the future, when we're thinking about pain that we go through, it doesn't matter what it is. We need to ask ourselves if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he really is and that he has power to deliver us for his glory, because that's ultimately what it's about. So the next thing here is help my unbelief. I'm going to try and keep that, I have that on there, because remember, it's all in light of the fact that he lives. So that empty tomb there is we believe because he lives. So I have some verses here that go with this. And honestly, I mean, today, the sermon, these are just things that Jesus is teaching me. And these are items that challenge me in my walk with the Lord. So none of them are going to be original Because, well, the Bible's all original. I said that last time, too. came out wrong. But yes, the Bible's written. But they're not unique to things you have not heard before, not new ideas. So here's the first one. With Lord help my unbelief, first of all, Jesus said his last three words before he was brought back was, it is finished. He stretched out his hands, and everything he came to do was completed. So when we have unbelief, We know that we believe in a Savior who did a finished work on our behalf for his glory. And when he was on that cross, arms stretched out like this, he was prophetically probably telling us in symbolism that he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. I should stand like this. But that's how he separated them. So it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. That means it is finished. There is nothing you can do. Funny story is, uh, most of you know I teach seventh graders. And you seventh graders out there who I taught are a trip. But 
teaching social studies, we study geography. And some people either love it, like me, geography nerds, or it's like, it's a map. I don't really care. I don't understand it. Where is it? So the one test question asked the students, well, if you were in this city and you had to travel to that city, which direction would you travel? So the answer was northwest. And as I'm grading these papers and I go over it with the students, I'm like, man, guys, northwest is the answer. They started writing down like they, like they were getting directions from Siri. Well, Mr. Edder, first I'd start by heading left. And then I'd go north and at this river, I, no, <laughs> northwest. Or other people would say, well, first you need to go northeast and then you go northwest. No. So I took out the globe and I said, okay, guys, look, here's how east and west works with north and south. I took the globe and I said, if you start right here at the equator and you start going north, will you eventually come to the other side and start going south? Yep. Mm -hmm. You will. But crazy thing, our God is so cool, because when he created the earth, he knew already that you can't go east and west at the same time. They will never run into each other. So I spun the globe and said, okay, look, it's spinning east. If you go east, will you ever go west? Yeah, sure you will. No, you won't. So then I spun it the other way. I said, what if you go west, will you ever go east? And they looked at me, some of them at least. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. They're gone. When Jesus, when, when God the Father looks at his son, Jesus Christ, and he sees him, he sees this perfect blood that he willingly came down to shed for us. This is the focus. It's the gospel. The gospel doesn't get old. Last night we wrote letters to persecuted Christians. And in what to say to them, like, what do you say? I've never been in prison. I've never had those kind of things. I don't understand what that is, but I'll tell you. The word of God and the gospel are so powerful that it's going to spur people on to repentance and to obedience, and it's going to encourage them. The gospel is where we always need to go back to. So the next verse I have here is, again, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now I've had three verses that say the same thing, but I'm trying to make a point. Okay, that Jesus takes away our sin, and it's finished, and it's gone. Also, this one's so cool. We hit this in a new membership class here the other week. It says, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a Lord and Savior who does that every single second of every single day. Where when he looks at Chris Etter or one of you and he says he sees Jesus. We all have an enemy. We all have the same enemy. We have an enemy called self. We have an enemy called Satan. And we will beat ourselves up to no end. But Jesus does this, and I just already said it, that he says, I'm the one who took the penalty of the sin. But I'll tell you. Now let's get real. What if you're in prison for your faith in another country, separated from your family, like Asia Bibi has, most of you guys know who she is, for years? Is this real to you? I mean, you're suffering away from your family. Is it real? But they also need to be reminded of these things. We are reminded of them as they suffer in obedience. It sharpens us to take these things for what they are. Another one, which might be a little bit uh, on a different avenue, is Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure, me, endure it. With temptation, I don't know about you, but for me, I often think of the temptation to sin, which is very real. 
Because when we're called to obedience, we're not called to, to live lives of sin. The Apostle Paul hammers that home all throughout the book of Romans and other books. But we know that we have a God who is faithful. He's going to provide that way of opportunity for us of escape. But at the same time, we also need to contribute to that. So we're told that if there's a certain thing that's causing us to sin, we need to take advantage of that and not put ourselves in a situation. So if there's an app that causes you to stumble, delete it. That app might be fine, but maybe within that app there's something that leads you somewhere else. Or maybe there's a person who you tend to hang out with which causes you to say the wrong things. Well, you need to, again, guard yourself. But that would be the way we normally think about temptation. But the other temptation, which our persecuted brothers and sisters have to wrestle with every day, is the temptation to be disobedient to what God has called them to do. Because that is what's putting them in prison. That's what's putting them in harm's way. That's what, that's what causes them to suffer. So for us, Jesus also made it available, a way of escape, from avoiding what he called us to do. If Jesus tells us to go, sometimes we look for reasons to say no, and we walk away. But this verse also is encouraging to me, and is teaching me, that when God calls me to do something for his purposes and his will, I'm able to be confident because I know that he's been through it. I know that he's going to give me the power and the strength to do it, like, for, like Philippians 4.13 says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we have that assurance. So those are some of the verses that have really strengthened me, encouraged me, sharpened me, and convicted me when I start playing that smallest violin and remembering who I am in Christ. Slightly changing gears here. I'm going to throw up a bunch of words. And each word is pretty much related to one another. But the vision. See, Jesus, when we become followers, when he sent his disciples out, he told them about the vision. The vision is going to happen. He told them they would suffer. They would be persecuted. They, we have to bear our own cross, rejection, poverty, and trials. All of these things are things that we know we are going to encounter. In the Middle East, a very real thing is if you come to Christ, your family is going to reject you. I mean, we've heard of a thing called honor killings. It's a real thing. But I've read stories, and you may have too, about, about people who, like a girl, for example, who comes to faith in Christ in a Muslim country... And what happens as a result, brother, older brother finds a Bible under her bed. He locks her in a room, and every day he goes and beats her until she recants. But she doesn't. That's suffering. It divides families. Um, I don't know about you guys. Everybody has a different testimony. I'm blessed and fortunate enough that, for me, personally, I came to know Jesus as my Savior when I was five. And I grew up in a home where Christ was preached because my parents were saved when I was too young to understand so I don't have to experience within my own family division. But many of you, if you were saved as an adult and your family is unsaved, they, think, they might think you're nuts. Why would you give this up? Why would you choose to live this way? I had a friend in high school, and when she was a senior, she came to know the Lord. And they went, they were a religious family, went to a Methodist church. But the way that my friend Amy was living, now that she's saved is very different. Her family thought she was crazy. Like, why would you do that? So it causes division. It causes suffering. Persecution is what we're, exactly what we're talking about today. We're called to bear our own cross. Jesus literally bore the cross on his shoulders when he went to be put on the cross. But 
we also are called to do that in obedience. And every single one of us is called to obedience somewhere. And Jesus told us that it would not be easy. I, I mentioned his disciples when they got sent out. He told his disciples that they would be brought before rulers on account for his name. And he told us that when we're brought before people, whoever it may be, that he's going to give us the words to say. But he didn't say it was going to be easy. He didn't say we wouldn't have pain. He didn't say we wouldn't have rejection. Poverty can be more than financial poverty. We're going to read a verse later on in Hebrews. We're just going to talk about poverty in a sense. But we are not going to be in the limelight necessarily popular. See, for me, I've got to be honest with you and be real. I have not suffered persecution very hard at all. And I'm fortunate for that because we thank the Lord that we can worship here together freely. And I've shared the gospel with people. Have they always accepted it? No. But the worst persecution I've ever had was probably in high school when people didn't want to hang out with me because I was no fun because I wouldn't go do the things they wanted to do. I don't really care anyway. But that's about the biggest persecution I've ever, ever experienced. So this stuff is really hard for me to relate to. So anyways, um, when we're in, when we, uh, so poverty, it might be poverty of popularity, poverty of money, poverty of you fill in the blank. But he says we're going to experience these things. And then trials. When we experience trials, James tells us that we're supposed to count it all joy. Knowing that these trials are for our testing of our faith for our spiritual maturity. My dad always had a way of explaining it. He said that this life is spiritual puberty. So we know how awkward middle school is and high school. We don't want to go through it again. But this life is preparing us for that which is to come. And we're called to do this well. So teenagers, I'll tell you, when your parents harp on you and get on your case, you know, about the way the decisions you're making, they know we've been there. And they're doing it for your own righteousness and your own sake because they're preparing you to do the exact same thing when you have your own kids. Now, you don't get that yet, and I didn't either. I understand. But listen to them because we are all going through spiritual puberty together. But when we go through it, this world doesn't make sense because we don't understand why these things happen. And one goes this way, another goes that way, and there's division. Tell me there's not division in households when teenagers live there. I'm getting scared because it's coming to my house. It happens. This is what the world we live in. So I'm going to move on here, and this is the part where we are going to talk about examples of Christians who are being persecuted. But before we get to modern, current ones, I want to introduce you to a guy um, named Dimitri. And wait, hit play there for a second. While I'm talking, if you guys want to kill the stage lights, um, if you haven't already... um, But there's a book out there called The Insanity of God, written by a man named Nick Ripkin. How many of you are just curious or familiar with the movie that was out two different times? They had showings called The Insanity of God. Okay, like three. Awesome. All right, three's good. So check it out. I did not see it either. I wanted to, and both nights it was showing. I just had plans. I couldn't be there. But I read the book called The Insanity of God, which sounds sacrilegious. It's not. It's not calling God insane. But what the premise of the book is this is this man, Nick Ripkin, um, has devoted his life to meeting, ministering to, and serving the persecuted church. And he basically, it's just a collection of his thoughts and stories and persecuted Christians who he's met. One of these men was an older gentleman whose name is Dmitri, who was a prisoner um, in the Soviet Union in Russia in the 60s. And Dmitri 
and again, this, you're going to see his whole story here in a second, so I'm just kind of giving you a little context, is Dimitri was a believer. He stepped out in obedience in a communist country where it was not easy. So as you watch the video, we'll talk about Dimitri in a second here when it's done, but it takes about five minutes to listen to this song, and then we'll move on. The worker until 1960, and I started teaching the Bible to my two little boys. That's when the journey began. Well, our house became a church, and the Sunday school grew. Had a hundred and fifty before we knew it, but the KGB. Didn't one got around 17 years they locked me up A thousand miles away This is my heart song And I will stand and sing For I am a son of the living King So when the fire comes I'll be rejoicing Yeah, even when I suffer I'll be singing Thank you. 
So praise God for Dimitri's story. And stories like this are powerful, especially when they can put music and good AV and stuff like that. But, you know, this is one of those things that's challenging for us to watch. It's a feel-good. It's convicting, and which is all fine. Think of Dimitri as a soldier, because he is. He's a soldier of Jesus Christ. We have soldiers in action today, and you've heard the stories of these soldiers who gave all, right? And they, we honor them. This Veterans Day is on Friday. And I know my school, we do a big program every year, and it is inspiring and motivating, which it should be. But if these men and women don't fulfill the duty that they signed up for, if we do not fulfill the duty to Jesus Christ that we signed up for, who are we motivating? See, we are in this life for self, or in this life for the Lord. And that's what it comes down to. That song, Dimitri's song, would not be here to spur us on to good works if he gave up. So let's pray for people like Dimitri's obedience. I mean, imagine being separated from your family for that long, taking the beatings. When are you going to cry mercy and spill the beans? Or whatever they want out of you? You know, Dimitri is challenging to me because his obedience affects millions. I mean, obviously now we're hearing of him. But before we ever heard of Dimitri, who did he impact? The men who persecuted him and mocked him in prison because they were hardened criminals and murderers and thieves. He was a follower of Jesus. But yet in the end, his testimony, though they mocked him, and abused him and made fun of him and whatever. They stood with him in the end. True story, okay? It's not just some feel-good to make you happy. But think of his sons. Man, that, that to me is like a punch in the gut right there when I see that part. Or his sons are little, <clears throat> and then they're big. What are you doing? What am I doing with our kids? You know, there's a statistic, and I forget it because it's mind-blowing. Age 18, some of you in this room are going to walk out and not come back. Because you don't find this real. So, these people who are persecuted, it's real. They're willing to count it joy. So, my question to us is, what are we doing? What are we doing to prepare ourselves for suffering? We're not going to be called, most likely, to go to prison we're most likely not going to be stoned or kicked or beaten or have our homes taken away. Oh, it could happen. But what are we doing? So I got ahead of myself because I got a little emotional there, but I'll come back to it. Two things. There we go. My goal is not for you to read the text, but just see the title and the picture. Here's two examples of real, real events that are going on now. November 4th, the country of Sierra Leone. They just had baptisms. This is in West Africa, small little country. Praise God. I mean, these people are coming out to identify in their faith in Jesus Christ. Identifying with his death, his burial, and the power of his resurrection, which brings us eternal life and fellowship with him. They're identifying with not only him, but each one of us. They're willing to join and let everybody know that they are on our team. They are on the body of Christ. That's the team they're on. 
but it cost them. Because if you can read the small print, and you ate your carrots last night, and you can read it, you see that these people were stoned. You see that they're being poisoned. And you can see that they're being abused in all kinds of ways. See, in America, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, I'm just speaking what I'm convicted to say. But baptism here does not carry the same weight it carries elsewhere. We're afraid to get our hair wet because we're afraid to go under the water. That was me as a kid. I was scared of water. Still, I'm a terrible swimmer. But I was afraid to go underwater. Or we're afraid to get up in front and share the fact that we represent Jesus because we don't like talking in front of people. I mean, I'm just asking, if that's why you're afraid to be baptized, count the cost. They're willing to knowing that this is what is going to cost them. Are you willing to be baptized to identify with the body of Christ? So think about that. See, the persecuted church, we need to come alongside and support them, but they sharpen us right here. Another one which sharpens me, I don't know Mrs. Cho, but she is a North Korean Christian who's now in China. So she got across the border. The article tells us that she has poor health, and, but she makes a, a, a journey a couple times a week into China, which is not easy for her because of travel and health, to be discipled. Again, we have it easy. I mean, I live three and a half miles from here. I'm in good health. What about us? Now, I'm not saying you have to attend every service. That's not my goal in going legalistic. But at the same time, what are we doing to grow? Or are we just lazy? Because that's my problem. I tend to be lazy. The persecuted church sharpens us. So if these people are willing to count the cost for what it takes to obediently serve Jesus Christ, should we not? And we should be supporting them. We don't have to sit in the prison. We don't have to be beaten. But we are called to be obedient where God has put us. So now that I'm down to five, here's where I want to go to end. And this will be bring up some of the things that are on my heart. So Hebrews 11... That's where I want to go. And there's a little bit of reading. I'll read it quickly. If you go to uh, 1 Peter, you went too far. So Hebrews 11, and I'm going to start in verses, verse 32. Some of you may recognize, I'm not reading the whole passage. You probably might recognize this as a thing called the Hall of Faith. So I'm going to pick up in the middle. Verse 32 the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Pause. That's all awesome stuff, isn't it? We get excited about that. But notice, the next stuff is still awesome stuff. Because it's what God called them to do, but this next part, God calls us to do. So picking up where I left off, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, notice that word tempted. Probably tempted to be disobedient. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. There's your poverty. 
being ostracized. All these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. But God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Into chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. I coach cross-country for the middle school. I love cross-country. But I tell my athletes, I'm like, guys, you are tougher than football players. And when I said that in first service, Caleb Cole popped up and said, what? Because this big guy back here plays football for Lower Dolphin. He's like, game on, bring it. Well, sure, you know, Caleb, you're going to clobber any one of my runners. And when Caleb's chasing you down, his goal is to inflict pain on the football field. But why are my athletes tougher than football players? Because they run for fun. Who does that? (laughs) And I guarantee you, Caleb and his football team are not going to go run 10 miles for fun. Because that's hard work. My team is tougher than a football team. But it's here. Because I don't know a football player, not maybe a few, but I don't know many football players who are going to go run and press through the pain. See, we're called to run a race, which is life. And we're called to have endurance. And see, we often, at least for me, I don't speak about you, but see, I often, when I think about run a race, I think about the past, that talks about all attain a prize. We think about running for that prize. And there is going to be a prize. Wrong focus. What does that verse say in verse 3? Consider him, this is Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So you may not grow weary and lose heart. Man, do we not grow weary? Do we lose heart? Uh, Proverbs 4.23 tells us to guard our heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. If we grow weary, man, doesn't the persecuted church grow weary? Moving on. Verse 11, 12, 13 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now, I skipped the part in there that talks about a loving father disciplines his children. We normally think about the discipline that hurts. And I, you know, we tell our kids, I love you. And there's discipline, which we do. We, love, we discipline them for things they do wrong. We've been disciplined for things we do wrong because we love our children. You know? But there's more to discipline than negative discipline. There's positive discipline. So parents, grandparents, every one of us in here, are we disciplining our children so that they don't walk out those doors when they're 18? Are we disciplining them, setting things in their life, teaching them the Scripture, so that when they suffer, they don't lose heart. Are we teaching them to keep their eyes on the author and perfecter of their faith? You know, I, I can keep rambling about that. That's exactly what Paul and Peter did the last few weeks in here. So there's the practical application to it. I think it's a good ending to what we just got done doing over the last month. Is are we discipling? 
disciplining our families? Are we disciplining ourselves? Because my word, how in the world can we discipline our families if we are just a talking head? You know all of us in school knew who the teachers were who were talking heads and who weren't. And there are the classes we paid attention in, and those are the ones we didn't. And any leader for that matter, right? Where are we at? In closing, I guess I kind of already did it. My bad. So there's the last slide. So with that in mind, all right, what are we doing now that will sustain us, sustain? I don't know what we're going to go through. I already listed that stuff. Persecution, cancer, I don't know. What are we doing now that will sustain us when times of testing come? There's my challenge, guys. And honestly, there's my heart. That's where I'm at. These are the questions I'm asking myself. So none of it's new. None of it's original. But I thank you guys for your support of the persecuted church and continue to stand with them. In the back, there's a table. I forgot to mention last service. All the stuff on there is free. Take it. There's some Voice of the Martyrs magazines. If you want to educate yourself on what's going on around the world, there's one pamphlet. So get ready. Rumble for it. Okay? One pamphlet out there about Islam and educating yourself. I have one left. There are two different varieties of letter writing kits. There's one that you send back to Voice of the Martyrs. There's another one that you mail in yourself, and there's directions out there. You want to encourage a prisoner? Send them scripture. They might not read the envelope, but maybe the officials will. Maybe that's you're going to give the gospel to somebody else. Did you guys catch one last thing, and I'll stop. Did you notice in the video that Dimitri, there was papers he was posting. You know what those were? Scriptures. Maybe your scripture, that you write a letter to a prisoner, they will hide that and tuck it away because you gave them the word of God and it will sustain them through their suffering. That is the power that your letter may have if you write them. So if you missed the chance to write letters last night, take it with you. There's plenty out there. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and then we're dismissed. Lord God, I thank you so much for this time that we have together. I thank you, Lord, for your body. Thank you that we can be on the team called the body of Christ, and we follow you. Lord, help us to be faithful soldiers, Lord, as we enlist in this. And Lord, that we would be willing to count the cost that you call us to have in our service. Lord, may we not be faint of heart. May we be disciplined. And Lord, may we live by example and uh, inspire those to follow us as we follow you. We thank you for these things, and we pray also for the persecuted church, Lord, that you would continue to embolden them, to strengthen them, and to be encouraged. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.